Jesus loves me, but I don't know. No one's ever told me so. I cannot read the Bible. Jesus loves me, but I don't know. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, but no one's told me so. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Fatima. I am a Pashtu widow with six children. I was born in Kandahar, and I'm used to war. Life was good even when the Russians came. My husband had work and we had food. But not long after he died in the Mujahideen War, the Taliban came and took over our city. We had to paint our windows black and women were not supposed to go out for anything other than weddings and the health clinic. But I had to go out and get food for my children. We were hungry. One day a Talib saw me in the bazaar buying rice and he began to beat me with his club. I lifted my veil and stared at him and asked him if he had a mother. He stopped and so I walked away. I continued to stand up to the Taliban by secretly teaching 50 students in my home, even though a large Taliban family lived four doors down from our two rented rooms. Salam alaikum. My name is Zoya. When I was 10, I loved playing with my cousins. But one day, my father became desperate for money, and I was married off as the fourth wife to a Pashtun man in our village. As the youngest wife, I do all of the laundry, the cooking, and the cleaning. And when I make a mistake, I'm beaten. I have had two daughters, three miscarriages, and no sons. So my husband has no more interest in me. I cannot read or write, so I have no way to earn money. By the time I was 22, I, I felt so helpless. I was thinking of dousing myself with kerosene and putting myself on fire like so many women in my village do. But then I met a foreign lady. Her name was Wendy, Wendy John. And she sat on the Toshek's with me and, and she drank tea with me and then she asked me about my husband and children. As I told her about my life, she began to cry. No one's ever cried with me before. She told me she had no power to change anything about my life, but she told me about a person who could help me. His name is Esau Masih. And then she told me that he loves me. No one's ever told me they loved me before. She said he'll always be with me and when they beat me, they're beating him. I, I can tell a difference in my heart now. I have hope and I have peace. I want to tell all my friends who've been forced into marriages about how they can follow Esau Masih. 
Assalamu alaikum. My name is Farishta. A foreign lady came to our village last year and she was teaching English to all of the boys. So I went and asked her if she would teach English to the girls. And she said, no, I'm too tired to teach in another class when it's 40 degrees Celsius. So she noticed I spoke English well. And so she asked me how I had learned it. So I told her that when I was 12, I was desperate for an education, like so many girls in our village are. But we were all too afraid to go to school because we didn't want acid thrown in our faces, as has happened so often. We didn't want to go to class with only boys. So, I dressed in my brother's clothes. I went to school as a boy. I never forgot the first time I went out by myself. I was a little afraid at first, but then I realized that no men were looking at me, no boys were throwing stones at me. I began to walk faster and faster. Soon I was running. Oh, I felt free like a bird. So I went to school all winter and learned English. So after she heard my story, Pamela John said she'd teach a few girls and me English twice a week. She taught us using stories from a book we had never heard of, the Injil. The more I learned about Esau, the more I wanted to know about him. I told Pamela John I wanted to follow Esau and Masih. Now I feel free in my heart, even though my father's pressuring me to marry my Afghan cousin who's a Muslim. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Hamida. I'm so excited because this year I've applied to colleges in America. <laughs> you may be wondering why my life is so different from so many Af Afghan girls. Well, it all started when I, when I began working as a nanny for a foreign family in our city. I told the wife Heidi John that I was 16, but really I was 14. <laughs> Within a year, I had learned English. I even knew American slang from reading these books to her children. But my education was not going so well because in my country, the teachers don't actually help you learn very much. So Heidi John offered to homeschool me and she and her husband offered for me to live with them. But, but in exchange for rent, which I couldn't pay, I was asked to study five hours a day outside of my nanny job. So in one year, I went from kindergarten to eighth grade, and I passed the ninth grade entrance exam into the International School of Kabul. Now, during that time, I watched how Heidi John and her husband lived. They didn't yell or fight, hit each other. He never hit her. The children learned about Jesus every day, and they spoke graciously to me even when I messed up. I began to read the Bible. And, and to ask questions, and I decided to follow Esau Masih with my whole heart. It hasn't always been easy since then. A, a friend of my sister's, who's a mullet in training, threatened to kill me, and, and my dad and my brother beat me up pretty badly. I had to go up to Tajikistan for a while, but this year I'm a senior and I'm graduating, and I hope to go to Moody Bible College next fall. Salam alaikum. My name is Rachel. <laughs> I had already traveled and ministered in over 50 countries by the time I married Bob, but I never forgot my first view of Kabul City. Nothing, none of my travels had prepared me for my first glimpse. 
It was the time of the Taliban, and we had come to join a team which had lived through the Mujahideen War. But the front line of that war was still only 25 to 30 kilometers away when we arrived with our first baby, who was only three months old. As we rounded the corner where the post office used to be and was just reduced to rubble, I saw utter devastation across the Cartusé suburb unlike anything I'd ever seen. It was completely flattened from war. And at that moment, my, my mind flew to Jeremiah and what he witnessed when he saw the rape and the pillaging and the utter des destruction of Jerusalem. I finally understood just a bit of the horrific and desperate conditions that he described in Lamentations. The people were suffering greatly under the Taliban's rule and the implementation of Sharia law, which, make no mistake about it, is literally hell on earth. What I didn't realize is how much we would be walking in Jeremiah's footsteps for the next almost 10 years. As we lived in Kabul and in the suffering we would see, the friends that we would have murdered, and the challenges to our faith in, in the experiences of the years which followed. And every single time we returned from a three-month home leave, God provided new opportunities for us to learn more about his character and his faithfulness. I literally never forgot the surprise that Bob and I felt when we agreed we felt that together as we flew out of Kabul the last time with our children because it was always an unspoken understanding that every time we went back, one of us had a high risk of being kidnapped and killed. So this morning we want to take a look at, at Hagar in chapter 16 of Genesis to see what we can learn from suffering and a returning to suffering in the Middle East and Central Asia. Chapter 16 is where we're first introduced to Hagar. <coughs> Abram's narrative is already muddy by this time because he asked Sarai to lie to Pharaoh and say that she was only his sister. And then in this chapter we see, just the short summary, that his fear overtakes him that he will not, God will not follow through on his promise to provide a son. So he gives in to her suggestion to have sex with her slave in order to guarantee his offspring. After Hagar conceives, she shows contempt for Sarah, Sarai, who in return begins to abuse her. This is the behavior from the family that God intended to bless the entire world. Hagar, in desperation, chooses certain death by fleeing to the wilderness instead of living with God's chosen family. Let's take a look more closely at the background context, primarily looking at verse 2, first of all. Now, when you're doing Bible study, whenever the same phrase is used, rabbis teach that this demonstrates connection between various parts of Scripture and is instructive for us. So we should pay attention when the same phrases are used. It's a little bit harder in English. But do you think that Sarai simply just forgave Abram for betraying her by selling her to Pharaoh to enter into his harem? She might have ended up there, but there's plenty of indications just even in verse 2 alone, that she was not very happy about that. There's some broken relationship going on between her and Abram. She, in this verse, begins to use his tactics to get what she wants. And let me show you how that is. There's two instances of the particle na in the Hebrew, which it, I noticed in my ESV was not at all translated. It, you might have one please in verse 2. There should be two pleases. It opens the entire dialogue. In ESV it says, Behold, um, but it, it should be something like, Abram, notice, please. Because he used that same particle, please, when he asked her, please tell Pharaoh this. 
He used her for his protection, so she begins her request to be built up with the same exact phraseology, the same tactic. She's going to use him for her gain. If her husband can disguise his intentions with the plea, so can she. Notice that she uses spiritual ease in this verse. The Lord has prevented me. It's really not her fault, of course. She's being cooperative. But God is the giver of the life, and he's interfered in the normal process. This is a personal affront to Sarai about what God has done or not done. Abram, Abram, what am I supposed to do? We're trying, but nothing's really happened. We're going to have to take another path. So, second article, nah, please go into my mate. Notice she does not use Hagar's name. Hagar is not a person. She's a means to an end. She's merely the storage bin for Sarai's expected child. She's a thing to be used in the same way that Sarai was a thing to be used by Abram for his protection. I'm only trying to do the will of the Lord. Have you ever heard yourself say that? But Sarai, Abram, and Hagar are sure one of the others is to blame. And for 13 years, no one is willing to face the evil in their own hearts. This tent hold is a place of strife, disagreement, bitterness, jealousy, heartache. They had not yet learned the lesson of John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The translations often say, perhaps I will obtain children. But the accurate Hebrew translation should say, actually, perhaps I may be built up. She wants to build Sarai's kingdom. This is not for Abram's benefit, even though God had promised to Abraham, Abram. Sarai hopes to gain personal esteem because we all know what a shame in a shame and honor culture it is to not have children. This plan is about Sarai and only accidentally about God's plan and promise. Now what happens? Abram listened to the voice of his wife, the same exact phrase from Genesis 3.17 when God confronts Adam, you listened to the voice of your wife. This recalls the fundamental disobedience of human beings. We can see that Abram and Sarai were not chosen for their righteousness. Sarah sees Hagar as forbidden fruit. She takes and gives Hagar to Abram in the same way with the exact same words that Eve took and gave the fruit to Adam. Both men consumed what their wives gave them. They did not stand up against their wives. They didn't say, wait, this is not pleasing to Yahweh. They didn't utter a word. They just did what they were told. In the process, Abram treats Hagar like a piece of fruit. They aren't compelled to do this. They do it willingly. There's too many parallels in this story between Genesis 3 and Genesis 16. We cannot miss it. God had reiterated his blessing already several times to Abram. There's no hint that that blessing depended on Abram. God was the initiator and the consummator of the promise. He should have known from the beginning that Sarai's plan was flawed, but it promised to be enjoyable to add something to his life, so he took and he ate. Even Sarai thought they could manage better than God. 
And both men forgot that God is in charge. Once this pattern of self-reliance and self-sufficiency starts, it, it will expand along the same uncontrollable, even unintentional lines unless someone breaks the chain. So in what area of your life have you been completely self-reliant? What area do you need to give over to him today? Notice that Adam affects Eve, Eve affects Cain, Cain affects Abel, Abram affects Sarai, Sarai affects Hagar, and on it goes. If you look at verse 15 of Genesis 6 of 16, this child never became Sarai's. It was Abram's and Hagar's child. She never got what she wanted. These two women never learned to love each other. What chains are you breaking today in the patterns of how you interact in your relationships? Now, it's important always in Bible study to look up what the meanings of the names are because they're always, it's always instructive for us. So Hagar is one of those names. She reveals one of God's secrets to us. The consonants for the name Hagar are the letters He, Gimel, and Resh. And if you go to Paleo-Hebrew and you look up what those pictures are, as I showed you on the first on the, the first night, it means, behold, a person lifted up. That's a startling name for a slave, don't you think? But that's not all that this name contains. There's two ways you can add um, consonants to this name. I mean vowels, excuse me, vowels. Before I explain that, the divine, there's a, one of the letters is considered divine because it's part of the name Yahweh. And that divine letter is the letter He. He Gimel Resh is how you spell her name. He means the window that you can see through and also the spirit of God. The spirit of God is included in Hagar's name. This same letter He is what gets added to Abram and Sarah's name to make Abraham and Sarah. Because you can hear the breath. It's the breath of God. When it gets added to their names, that's a significant step of faith for Abram. But in Hagar's case, that letter He is in there from the beginning. And when you add the vowels to it, there's two ways um, scholars say you can add it. One of those ways means the one with whom Yahweh dwells or Yahweh dwells. Well, that seems to actually fit the character of the slave based on how she responds later in Genesis 16. Certainly God is dwelling with her and he has his hand of divine sovereignty over her even when she runs into the wilderness. So let's look at verse 8. And he said, Hagar, Sarai, slave girl, where did you come from and where are you going? This is the first appearance of the angel of the Lord by name in scripture. That alone makes this event extremely important. And in addition, this is the very first conversation that the angel of the Lord has between him and a woman. And even more amazingly, a woman who's not an Israelite, one of God's chosen people. And even more amazing, she's a slave. She's an Egyptian slave. Notice also that he finds her. God is watching, he's looking, and he's finding. This text gives no indication that she says anything before he asks. He, he asks her a question as if he is not certain about what she's going to think or do. 
He's seemingly quite aware of where she is now because her nonverbal expression is telling it all. And he asks her two questions using the word where. In Hebrew, there's two wheres, and of course in English we only have one. So we have to know which where it is in Hebrew because there's different meanings. One where is the where that's a statement of surprise, like, why aren't you here where I expected you to be? And the other where is like, where's the exit? Where's the door? It's location, surprise versus location. And unless you know the difference, your translation hides something key from, from you and from me. So which where does he use? Well, he uses the word for surprise. So what does that tell us? The angel of the Lord expresses surprise that Hagar is here in the wilderness. She should be in the camp with Abram and Sarai. But that's not all that's, that's in that surprise question. What are you doing here turns into why have you run away from your pain? Hagar only knows that she's running. The surprise expressed by the angel of the Lord is really about the foolishness of trying to escape pain as a way of solving the problem. Hagar runs to the wilderness in order to get away from her troubles. But think about the wilderness. It's the place where you die, where it's chaos, where there's wild beasts. She's exchanged one set of problems for another set of problems. Perhaps this where expresses a surprise that anyone would choose this solution when the real answer is finding God in the midst of pain. The real answer is trust, not escape. The angel of the Lord is shocked that Hagar decides her problems are so bad she will risk dying rather than trust in the sovereignty of God. And in the end, the angel of the Lord reveals to Hagar she must return because God is doing something in the situation she cannot see. What is he doing in your situation that you haven't stopped to see or to consider? The second question, another where, she might be able to answer that first one, I'm running away from my pain, I'm running away from Sarai. But she can't answer the second question. She doesn't know where she's going. The intent of this question in Hebrew is really, where do you seek to walk? Which is um, very close to a Hebrew idiom about the manner of life that a person leads. To walk is not about taking steps to get somewhere. It's about the path your life is taking to your destiny. I wonder if she can't answer the second question because she doesn't know where she's going. She doesn't go anywhere because she's not seeking to walk according to the Lord. And you see, these verses in chapter 16 are really a commentary on what kind of God we serve. Not a mute God like all the ancient Near East gods. Not an absent God who they had to feed and care for in hopes that he would come and bless them, their idols. He's a God who knows your name. He's seeking you where you're at. God's longing for us is even greater than ours for him. And having created us for his pleasure, for himself, he's constantly seeking us out. He's the one that initiates our yearning for him, willing that we will push into his presence and live our whole life there. He's the same God yesterday for Hagar as he is today, and he will be forever. He's seeking you and wants your heart. So what was Hagar suffering? We have to see that. In, in verse 6, it says, Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. That phrase, dealt harshly, 
is the same phrase used in Genesis 15:13, describing the harsh oppression of Pharaoh. Did I say Genesis? That was Exodus, sorry. Exodus 15:13, describing the harsh oppression of Pharaoh on Abraham's descendants in Egypt. This is the unjust misuse of one's authority over another. Sarai the Israelite treated Hagar the Egyptian in the exact same category of Pharaoh, his treatment of the slaves when he dealt harshly with them, the Israelite slaves, and made them gather straw to make the bricks. Sarai's treatment of Hagar is so bad, so abusive, a pregnant slave girl chooses to run into the wilderness to choose certain death over staying with God's chosen family. And I have to tell you that I literally sobbed when I read, when I read this last bit of exegesis. It took me two days until I could come back to this because I pushed my own pain buttons of older women who have been hurtful and abusive to me. Hagar knew what she was returning to. She knew the suffering that she was, she was, going to be at, that she was being asked by the angel of the Lord to submit to. Some of the highlights of the challenges that we faced in our years. <clears throat> we were living in Peshawar, Pakistan when 9-11 occurred. And that same week, my mom, I was told, was being rushed to Mayo and was probably going to die and was having uh, surgery. We had to evacuate and there was some very scary moments there because we didn't know we were living in the recruiting headquarters for the Taliban. It's right on the border of Afghanistan. And then by the end of that week, I was bleeding because I was four months pregnant, and the sheer stress of the week was putting my pregnancy in danger. The baby was born at four pounds at full term. She was a very stressed baby. Bob and I returned to Kabul just uh, in the first part of, of 2002 and had our home set up by June, I believe. And um, we had made a, a, a secret agreement just between him and I that when the Taliban or should the Taliban ever start shooting civilians and aid workers, we would consider that our time to go. We're not going to be the frog in the pot, not knowing it was boiling. That fall during the month of Ramadan, we experienced a large-scale robbery in our home. Ten Afghan men entered while we were there. And they held us at gunpoint and ransacked our entire house. We were the third house they hit that day, and they killed people in each of the other two homes. It's a, it's a story, it's a long story of what happened that Ramazan evening. But we stayed. It took, it took me five years to recover. I was so angry at Afghan men. One day my husband said to me, if you're just going to yell at every Afghan man who comes to our home, we might as well pack up and leave. So I learned not to yell at the men, but it was five years until God showed me the anger and unforgiveness I still had in my heart towards them. It took two times praying through that home until it was spiritually cleansed of the fear and the disease that had been inhabiting our home um, after the robbery. After our, we always had three-month home leaves, we returned um, in very early in 2004 to a situation that uh, began us on a negative path. We began to beg God to let us out of Afghanistan. We were experiencing no fruit, nobody, nothing. Nothing was happening. We were frustrated with our teammates. We didn't like our leadership. And the Afghan culture is very, very abrasive, especially for Western foreigners. So we just began uh, 
constantly begging God to let us out of here. And we set a date because it had gone on for more than a year of September 2005 that we would make our decision whether we'd stay or whether we'd go. And then we told our team and our regional leaders that. But one hot August day in 2005, Bob came home a little early from work and he told me God had spoken to him. It's the only time in our marriage where I felt God had spoken to me through my husband. And you see, for the last two homilies, we preached Jeremiah to our, our supporters back. Well, it's not a real popular message, you know. <laughs> um, well, we were preaching it. And he said, the Lord said that to him this morning. He said, are you willing to stay in Afghanistan even if your ministry for the next 20 to 30 years reflects that of Jeremiah? We sat on our veranda and we wept. I remember that feeling of almost hyperventilating physically and emotionally because that was not what we had signed up for. To live amongst a violent people who had robbed us and abused us. To have the Lord say there's be no hope of fruit because that was the reality of Jeremiah's ministry his entire life. He preached, they never repented, and he saw them carried off into captivity. And he was, as tradition says, put into a log and uh, put into a barrel and sawn in two. To die in the end with no result of seeing people come to Christ. Now, just to make sure you know, I'm, I'm a, in a fairly vain woman. Um, part of my, my response to God's request was I uh, informed my husband I was going to be purchasing several bottles of the most expensive nail polish and importing them into Kabul. And then I went to the secondhand bazaar and bought the highest high heels I could possibly buy because I, I just couldn't see my, my youthful beauty of my 30s and 40s and 50s passing me by. <laughs> I mean, there's no sidewalks in Kabul. It's like silly to have you know, heels that are anyways. They were quite fun. So we stayed. So some of the things that we dealt with through the entire time were things like dirty dirt. The German military did an air quality test, and there's a high percentage of fecal matter because there's still open sewers in the capital city. You know, the dirt storms, storms come and blow that up. Dirty dirt, and it's so dusty, you, you, you can have your house helper dust in the morning and at 10, and by 2, you're writing your name in your furniture again. The entire time we lived with no electricity, it was just the generator, and I had a budget of how long I could run my generator every day. The entire time of cloth diapers with three children using a semi-automatic washing machine. Culture fatigue. The dust storms, like I said, that was a constant. Compassion fatigue. Lots of sickness. Death of my mom, eventually she died a few years later. The cancer of my sister, friends leaving, things constantly breaking, because of course in that dirt, nothing stays going for long. Feelings of self-disappointment, hardness of heart, compassion, faced with the impossibility of the task, overwhelming anger, frustration, loneliness, isolation, misunderstanding, mullahs preaching against us weekly on the Friday mosque day, government officials criticizing us. I would get sick literally every single time I went out grocery shopping for the entire time I lived in Afghanistan. So I did it, and at least just having a totter in the pollution and the heat, I just, it was just hard for me. I'm not the world's, you know, poster child for overseas work. I would try to go grocery shopping once a month or once every two months if I could possibly help it. As foreigners, we were isolated and pointed at. The children and I had stones thrown at us. We, we were just there in, in April and had stones thrown at us again. 
BB guns were pointed and fired at my children, of course, sexual harassment regularly whenever I went out, didn't matter what I was wearing. And in the shock, when my six-year-old blonde hair, blue-eyed girl, the men staring at her instead of me, because my kids always look two years older than their kids because of nutrition, and so she looked eight, which is marriageable age in Afghanistan culture. We always lived with a five-minute evacuation plan. Our schools and churches had uh, church, sorry, had um, terrorist training, terrorist attack training drills, not fire drills. I taught my children how when we were walking the street just to pay attention if a car slowed down it could be a kidnapper, so they how what to do and how to handle that. By 2008, Christians calling us irresponsible for being there. My husband scolding me for going out without using the buddy system, even if it was you know two minutes down the street to a friend. The constant randomization of our schedules because of not you know wanting in case we're being surveilled that we did not have uh, regular patterns and habits. We began to live with the expectation that something bad was going to happen, and indeed in 2008, in January, the Taliban had, had planned the um, attack, and they walked into the five-star hotel, the Serena Hotel, at 6.30 when all the aid workers were in there exercising before dinner, and they shot and killed many, many civilians. And then just a week or two later, Sid, Sid was kidnapped and presumed murdered. A few weeks after that, three aid workers were in there, three women aid workers were in their white aid truck and they were gunned down. The husband of one of our Christian school teachers was kidnapped that year. There were so many lockdowns. It was regular, not just 2008 and the times the years before that. Threats upon threats constantly, all, every day. Kidnappings, many of which we kept out of the news. Killings, more threats, demonstrations, which on a couple occasions went into riots. By the fall of 2008, there was a 300% increase of incidences against foreigners from the previous year. And all the data that we were reading indicated that this trend would continue, especially because of the elections looming. Afghan, our Afghan workers and our friends, um, anybody associating with foreigners could be harassed and killed. The Taliban at that time were checking the phones, and if there was numbers of foreigners on there, they would detain that Afghan and sometimes kill them. It was during that spring and summer of 2008, because he, we had, remember, we had made a decision we were going to leave when they started killing, but we were the leaders of a very large organization. We had 100 people, 100 foreigners were responsible, 100. Uh, we couldn't just leave, so we knew we had to have a change of theology. And that spring and summer of 2008, I was meditating on the lives of the minor prophets. And I noticed something, that they were constantly preaching repentance to the people, but and that they were warning them that God's judgment was going to fall. And when God's judgment fell, the prophets didn't get up and leave. They didn't send their families out to a safe place. They stayed. They suffered with the people. And I began to realize that that was what we were called to. That was what our children were called to. And then that fall, Gail was killed. She was shot at point-blank range, two blocks from our house, at approximately 8.05, right after all the children had been walked to school by their mothers, and many of my friends were walking back home from the school. Gulbadeen Hekmatir, the vampire, he's called by Afghans the vampire of Kabul, claimed responsibility for Gail's death and said that because she was trying to convert the blind children she was working with. We knew we were entering a new stage at that time, we had at least two families immediately go into crisis, and we had to help them get out of there. Their children weren't doing well because mommy and daddy weren't doing well. 
And we had many of our staff, we began to, we, after some process of evaluation and prayer and input from multiple sources, began to encourage our people to take early vacation and early home leave. And the decision was made that we would downsize. Many, of course, Gail's agency pulled out, which was one of my best friends was in that company. And I, it's hard to explain how scary this was. Because the Taliban were, were saying right daily that they were looking, actively looking for foreigners to kidnap and kill. And we were immediately under lockdown until decisions could be made. Lockdown meaning no walking on the street whatsoever and min minimizing the trips out of our, our gates. And I can't tell you how incredibly tempted I was to get out my credit card, purchase four seats on the first plane out of there, let Bob finish the term, I'll wait for him in America. And the Lord said to me, he said, will you drink this cup? And I looked in the cup, and the cup was almost, we didn't know, but almost 10 months I had to be in lockdown with my children because I needed to support my husband because we couldn't end a flight program which would devastate the entire global community of workers. They needed safe transport and safe communication and we needed a skeleton crew to keep it going. And I needed to, for 10 months, I needed to stay even though I was so afraid. I'd never been that afraid even under the Taliban times. And I needed to stay with my children and me and my children were now at greater risk than we'd ever been before. Not only that, the cup, it said I had to do it with joy. I needed to get these kids through a long period of time with no emotional or mental scarring. <coughs> I was so glad my mother was dead, not alive to see that day. I don't mean to be funny. It's okay that you left, but I was so glad she was not alive to see that day. I didn't want it for my children. I made my children, since they were two or three, as soon as they could, memorize all of Psalm 23 because I needed my children to know exactly what to do if their school was attacked by terrorists because, as you know, that's happened numerous times in this region. And so the Lord brought to mind, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff comforteth me. I prepare a table before, before you in the presence of your enemies. And we knew we had a table before us in the presence of our enemies. I had a beautiful home. We had a good community that was staying. Over those months, 75% of the Kabul expat global worker community left. All of my friends, all of my close friends, most, much of my team, of course. And my sixth grade teacher's always gotten my newsletter, and he somehow sensed the fear. I didn't think I had communicated it. And he said, as you go into this valley, I want you to know two things. There's two, there's two flowers mentioned in scripture specifically. One is the Rose of Sharon, which grows up high in the sunshine in the plain where you can see. The other, the other flower is the Lily of the Valley. The lily of the valley only grows in the dark, cold crevices of the valley. Both are pictures of Jesus Christ. And he said, look for the lily of the valley as you go into this valley. And I can tell you that a bubble of peace, I mean, we agreed, those of us who stayed, it just felt like this bubble of peace was over us. 
it, it did mean that there was still grave risk and that any one of us could have been kidnapped or killed. But we just, we just felt peace. And because so many foreigners had left, the Afghans who, who were watching this, they said, why did you stay? We had more opportunities to share our faith when it was the darkest and scariest time than at any other time we'd ever had. Now, ladies, there's five major causes of depression. Physical, chemical issues. Emotional, which includes losses, grief, loneliness, failure, anger, self-criticalness. Environmental, which includes trauma, seasonal affective disorder, isolation, chronic stress. Interpersonal issues like abuse and conflict. And then spiritual, which includes guilt, bitterness, and unforgiveness, spiritual crisis, and spiritual warfare. I've had depression of every single one of all of those major categories and subcategories except bitterness. So just to let you know that it's not like the last 20 years I've done well surviving through these hard things. I've been clinically depressed twice. One was diagnosed, one wasn't. I wasn't going to go see a counselor because I knew I was clinically depressed. <laughs> so much that I had thoughts of ending my life, which is one step away from being suicidal. I can look back and see the years of chronic depression, and I'm very familiar with the depression cycle. I know when it's beginning. Some of you have not made an appointment with a prayer counselor or with one of the counselors, and I would encourage you to do that today. What about your experience of returning to suffering? Now, of course I don't know what you're returning to, but I want to just paint the broad stroke picture of Central Asia and the Middle East, because a current look tells us to anticipate things to get much harder in our region. As you know, in Central Asia, there's more than 500 distinct ethno-linguistic people groups completely unreached, and in Middle East, there's about 400. The number of evangelical Christians totals less than 2%. We know that short-term work is increasing and long-term work, workers are decreasing. However, 70,000 people die every day never having heard anything about Jesus Christ. In Afghanistan, we calculated it was approximately one martyr's death for every 300 Afghan followers. Um, a worker I've been walking with in Yemen told me about how she was being surveilled and followed in the bazaar the previous week, and then the subsequent kidnapping and abuse of friends. Another worker from Brazil was telling me about the death threats against her, and then the person extended that to anybody she worked with. Right now, there's Dutch workers who are kidnapped by Al-Qaeda still. There's some Syrian Christians who've lived their whole life in Alexandria, Egypt, a beautiful city I visited, and little six-year-old Michael and his parents were slaughtered just on Monday. The attacks on, on workers and Christ followers have dramatically increased in the past century. Christians in the Middle East and Africa are being slaughtered, tortured, raped, kidnapped, beheaded, and forced to flee. However, the attrition rates have more than doubled in the past decade in the two largest CP organizations from America. Five major CP organizations have privately told me they have a 50 to 60% attrition rate of their company in these two regions, usually for preventable reasons. The return on investment for strengthening workers, the existing workers, to become more resilient and to stay on the field is incredibly valuable because of the, the cost of a loss of a family and the cost of replacing them. But there's increased trauma on all of us 
The trauma includes accidents, robbery, rape, evacuation, and death. Those are the big ones. There's dripping faucet stress. It is a term that's coined. Years of accumulative stressors, hardships, small traumas. Research is showing that 50% or more of Western cross-cultural workers are returning home manifesting some level of emotional illness, including panic attacks, depression, PTSD, and burnout. And I... I was meeting with somebody, and she said, oh, you, you've got all the clinical definition of, of panic attacks. And as I reflected on all the daily traumas I've had, I'm like, oh, I understand why I had, I, I've been healed from that, but why I had it. Add into these pressures on global workers, issues of spiritual warfare, teen conflict, discouragement and depression, daily physical risk and persecution, family stressors, cross-cultural stressors, including language learning, the visa stressors, the demands for results from home and from sending bodies, the stressors are off the charts for you and for me. The harsh contemporary, contemporary reality of overseas services and contributing to significant attrition. <clears throat> and then pure evil. According to UN reports, four of every ten Turkish women are beaten by their husbands. This is recent data. Five women a day are killed by men. Google reports that in Central Asia and the Middle East, a survey shows that mostly Muslim states seek access to sex-related websites. Pakistan tops the list. Google found that of the top 10 countries searching for these sites, um, six were Muslim. The other Muslim countries are Egypt at number two, Iran at number four, Morocco at number five, and Saudi Arabia at number seven, and Turkey at number eight. Many people don't know this, but homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, the child and women's sex trafficking um, trade, and the perversions of all kinds are problems all across this region. In one village in Turkey, it's reported that 90% of the men have engaged in bestiality. Living and working in the gate, near the gates of hell is not pretty, it's not glamorous, it doesn't smell good, and it's not for the faint-hearted. Bob and I were meeting um, with a couple at a, at a conference, and we were in two different locations meeting at the exact same time, he with the husband and me with the wife, and the, the two were saying the exact same thing to us, and what they said is, um, you know, we've successfully planted, um, we've successfully been, we've been successful at what we've done, and um, we have some workers, we have some followers, but she said to me, I'm losing my faith and my trust in God. And, I, and so by any Western standards, they would be a success. They've learned the language, they've, they've, done their, they've done their work. And I said, well, tell me about some of the challenges you've had. And so she began to tell me the stories and listing the disappointments and the hurts. And I said, you could tell me anything that's not in Matthew 10. You were promised all of that. I said it slightly gentler and nicer than that. <laughs> She looked at me with shock. I said, haven't you read Matthew 10? We're promised to be abandoned and betrayed, to be slandered, to be jailed, to be flogged, to have people walk out on us. We're promised it. What about you? Where have you come from? Where are you going? What are you returning to? No, no Christian escapes the taste of the wilderness on the way to the promised land. For most of us, there comes a time when, like Hagar, we're ready to give up. We feel abandoned by God, left to die of hunger and thirst. But you see, it's in the wilderness where we discover God remembers us and hears us and is with us and saves us. 
Notice that with Hagar, God is not a kindly grandfather who said, who just is observing. When she, when she says, I'm running away from my mistress, we expect him to say this. Oh, there now. I understand what those bad people have done to you. You just go home to Egypt to your mommy, and I'll take care of Sarah and Abram. We have to have joy in all circumstances. I was convicted in 2005 of not having joy. We were part of a couple's Bible study, and we went around, all of us, men and women, had to say what we, were, what we found easy in, in Kabul. And my friend Joyce, who's from Scotland, she said, I find it so easy to have joy here. And I just said, you do? I'm just thinking, this is a hellhole, and I'm supposed to have joy here? And immediately the Lord tapped me and he said, we're, as Paul said, we're to have joy in all circumstances, in all situations. And it's not something that just passively comes over you. It's a choice. The way out, the way to joy is thankfulness. God requires Hagar to turn back into a horribly abusive situation, where as a vulnerable pregnant woman, she's subjecting herself to the very pain from which she's fled. But without flinching, he adds that he will preserve her and make her descendants too numerous to count. So what does Hagar do? She's unquestionably obedient. She responds without hesitation to the voice of her master, and she returns to the abuse. She seems to know God. Remember, God asks Hagar, a pregnant Egyptian slave who's worth less than a domesticated animal, to return to a mistress who's considered the most godly in the world at the time, but who is brutally abusing her. And and how can she do this? Hagar has the experience of being seen. In her exchange with God, she sees the one who sees me. God meets her, and she's known. This changes her life and the history of the world forever because we learn that he is the one who sees. So often we feel invisible, most notably when God is actually present. We might not feel known by our team or our spouse even or our parents or our friends. We long to be seen. And when we can sense that we're seen, we can move on with courage and kindness and strength. The Lord sees you. He sees me. He sees our suffering, our heartache, our grief. Psalm 56 says, You tell me my wanderings. You put my tears into your bottle. Have they not in your book? Have you found God to be the one who lives and sees, the one who knows about your life and your circumstances, the one who knows your past and your future, and says to you as he says to Hagar, Return and submit. That's the place where he can bless. Allow yourself to sense God's presence. Hagar's the first person to name God in the Bible. She's the only person in the Old Testament to name God. She names him Elroi, the God who sees. And God names her child, God hears. Scripture's full of hidden surprises in the text when you look. And this is the glorious one because she has a deep relationship with Almighty God. Her very name implies she's always had that kind of obedient trust that God desires in us. He sees her, he hears her, and she names her Lord for who he truly is, the one who sees. How is she entering the son's suffering? The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, and we know from the name she gives him as well as his knowledge of her, that's who he is. 
According to Revelation 13.8, he is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. We just didn't see it till the cross. She's entering his suffering. And if we wish to enter more deeply into the mystery of redemptive suffering, which also means somehow entering more deeply into the heart of God, we have to ask the Lord to allow us to feel, not just to know, to feel what it means to be empty and abandoned and rejected and cared for, not just for five minutes and not about trivial things, but our whole life orientation. It's deeply painful when he places his broken heart in ours. So how can we return to suffering? How can we stand firm and withstand the gates of hell as his body in the darkest places left in this broken, risk-adverse world? Because if we want to be the generation of women, known by our children and the people around us and the future generations as passionately committed to Jesus Christ and the advancement of his kingdom, women known who are part of completing the task he gave us before he ascended, it will take a change in our theology of suffering, our theology of risk, our theology of stewardship, and our dependency upon the Holy Spirit. The task ahead of us is huge. We are not engaged in trivial matters. We are engaged in a cosmic war for the souls of men, women, and children. We must resolve not to be distracted by the good things and fight to focus on what is most excellent and compelling. Ladies, let us resolve to be marked as women with calm, deliberate, calculated, permanent commitment, even in hostile and difficult circumstances to rooted and matured, orthodox, biblically grounded, and trained faith. Let us resolve to stand firm whatever hell throws at us. Let us resolve to endure, to learn resilience, to walk firmly. Let us resolve to never quit. Let us resolve with unwavering and firm conviction to follow him wherever he takes us. Let us resolve to persevere with joy the race set out before us. Each one's race is different. Do not compare races. What is the end result? The better than gold faith that we can pass on to the next generation. And we will be known as women who have a death-defying passion for God that goes way beyond what this world can give or take from us. Let me pray for you. Father, you know each woman's circumstance here. We can see that there's no place so desolate that we cannot find you. But perhaps some still can't see you or sense you. Lord, I just ask you, give each woman here eyes of faith. The spiritual eyes help each person here to encounter you in her wilderness and be able to help others encounter you in their wilderness. You are the one who sees us always. You see us as redeemed saints, beautifully, gloriously radiant in your righteousness. Help us to know this, not just in our minds, but I ask you, Father, to whisper it in the deepest parts of our being. Amen.